Hi everyone, and welcome to the KeepWise Podcast. I am Daniel Smith, host of the KeepWise Podcast and founder of Keepingly, the home management platform. KeepWise is a podcast that will enable persons to navigate and understand different elements of the home ownership journey from end to end, from buyers to sellers to owners. This podcast will equip individuals with the information to make the best decisions around their home. So, on this first episode, we have a very distinguished guest, Dr. Vanessa Perry. Dr. Perry is the Vice Dean for Strategy. She's a Special Advisor to the Dean and Professor of Marketing, Strategic Management and Public Policy at the George Washington University School of Business. She has spent over two decades around the housing world, having worked at the Department of Housing previously, and has won several awards around issues in the housing industry. In 2020, Dr. Perry won the AMA EBCO Annual Award for Responsible Research in Marketing for Dog Parks and Coffee Shops, Diversity and Consumption in Gentrifying Neighborhoods, for the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing. In 2020, she also won the Marketing American Marketing Association Foundation Award. So, Dr. Perry has a wealth of experience and knowledge on issues that impact the housing world. First off, thank you so much, Dr. Perry, for joining us today. Uh, my name is Amira Ravenobe. For those that don't know me, but it's exciting. We're on our first season of our first show of our podcast. So we are uh, very excited to have you on board. I'm, I'm the so CEO. And- Thanks. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm the CEO and co-founder of The Home Dispatch, where we help homeowners be able to manage and maintain their homes through projects products and advice and guidance. And so um, this really is to learn more about you, but Daniel, you wanna share who you are first and then we can let Vanessa and Dr. Perry share, take the floor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm Daniel Smith, founder of Keepingly, which is a platform that helps homeowners to manage, maintain and grow the value of their home. And, you know, I'm so excited to be doing this because ultimately, the objective is really about helping homeowners to understand what is happening in the market and really be able to make better decisions around their most important asset, which is their home. And so I'll jump right in and we'll get to Dr. Perry. So Dr. Perry, tell us a bit about yourself. So, As I mentioned, I'm really, really excited to be here. And I think that this uh, is going to be sort of an amazing podcast series. So I'm looking forward to uh, listening on a a regular basis. I think it's awesome. And I think that you're doing really important work. Uh, I am a professor and uh, scholar researcher on issues that relate to consumers in housing and mortgage markets. Over time, I've kind of shifted from looking at sort of the consumer perspective and the decisions that they're faced with to understanding how the market works and how the way the market is structured and issues like historical discrimination, how they have shaped the way the market works and 
ways that we can intervene from a policy perspective and from an industry perspective to try to provide solutions so that a wider range of historically disadvantaged people have access to home ownership opportunities and to opportunities to sort of build wealth. That's really uh, broad in terms of what you've done. Um, and so it's really great to understand how this shapes, you know, from a policy level, how it impacts. So growing up, that, let's just go back, uh, way back, you know, growing up. Way, way um, back. Way, way back. <laughs> um, were you really, is this the career path that you saw yourself on what, or what sparked your interest in actually um getting into this whole conversation of housing? So funny you should ask that because um, I think my career may have been predestined and I didn't even realize it until recently. Um, Some of my earliest memories were of being the target of sort of racial slurs and exclusion. You know, I was the only black kid in kindergarten, first grade. I was called bad names, kids wouldn't play with me. Uh, And my parents were both civil rights activists. Um, They made it very clear to me very early on how the world works. Um, My mom grew up in a small mining community in Western Pennsylvania. And uh, there was the cemetery, Edinburgh Cemetery, which was and still is a segregated cemetery. And my grandparents are buried there and a bunch of other um, relatives. My, my mother's grandparents are, are buried there, at least a couple of them. And you know, every year we would have to visit the cemetery and the side where the white people are buried is this you know, really um, beautiful, well-landscaped, carefully manicured, nice new fresh flowers planted you know, this sort of lovely side of the cemetery. And then you cross the white picket fence um, and going down a slope where there's erosion and where there are weeds growing and it's just, you know, just sort of a mess is the side where black people are buried. Now, both sides of the cemetery are owned by the same company, but they refused to provide any upkeep or maintenance to the black side. So the black families in the community would have to take turns taking care of that side uh, of the cemetery. Um, And as a small child, I knew something wasn't right about that. I just, this just doesn't make sense to me. Like, how can this be? And my parents, their typical message to me is, this is the way it works. You know, this may not be the fight you want to take up uh, at this time but this is what we are trying to change. So these were kind of early images that that I was exposed to, but never really set out to do anything related to housing or uh, knew really very little about it. When I got a job at Freddie Mac back in the early 90s, uh, I was assigned to work on issues related to affordable housing and fair lending and knew nothing about those topics until uh, I went there. It was an amazing learning experience. And I feel like I found uh, my niche, my niche. I found my passion, always interested in sort of where people live and neighborhoods 
and how they came to be, uh, how they came to have value associated with them, uh, why it is that segregation persists. Uh, all of these issues are, are ones that I became really interested in, but I think on some level it goes back to those, those early exposures that I had. And that's, that's fascinating. Uh, and so my next question would really pick up from your experiences at Fannie Mae. Freddie Mac. Freddie Mac, sorry. Close. And, <laughs> and how um, the issues of affordable housing, as you mentioned, uh, really sparked your interest, I would guess, for you to start really looking down into the rabbit hole of the diversity of issues and especially the inequality side of the conversation. So also another kind of interesting question. Um, I started this job at Freddie Mac, again, not knowing anything about the housing market, nothing about mortgages. You know, I was hired to you know, basically be a financial analyst to analyze data, and I didn't even know what data I would be analyzing when I started there, but quickly got interested in these issues. But it all started really with this one lunch speaker we had, and I won't name his name because he still to this day is a high ranking government official and a graduate of arguably the most prestigious economics program in the world. But after this lunch speech uh, presentation, the topic of sort of financial literacy came up and financial decisions made by consumers. And he said, you know, I never understood why people take out car loans. He said, I bought my first car and it was used with a little trust fund that my grandparents left for me when I was in graduate school. And I drove that car for years. It was a great car. So I never understood why people would take out a loan on a depreciating asset. And he said it as if the vast majority of people in this country are just idiots, just didn't know any better, as if everybody has access to trust funds or as if people don't need automobiles to get to work. I mean, this was long before Uber. Um, it was such a broad, sweeping, naive statement. And I was like, you know, EGADS, this guy is responsible for influencing regulatory policy related to affordable housing and access to home ownership for millions of people, including people of color who, you know, already struggle with access to, to financial services and have to pay more than others, etc. So I, I was I was sort of shocked and shocked that nobody else seemed to react the way that I did. But that's when I, that was at that moment when I decided that it was gonna be my job to expose the cracks and holes and deficiencies in traditional economic theory and the way that people were assuming at that time that consumers made decisions and the influences that they responded to. Uh, and so that was when I decided to go back to school uh, that conversation very much kind of informed my dissertation uh, topic, uh, and it's, it's informed several studies that I have embarked upon since then, 
that really are intended to just expose the fact that many of the people who are uh, many of the lawyers and economists who we rely on to formulate regulations just really do not understand actual people and the circumstances that they face. Dr. Perry, I have to jump in here because there might be people that are listening and they don't understand why you had such a reaction to that comment or what was even wrong with that statement. You know, can you help unpeel why there was shock for you? And maybe I understand, but there may be a subset of individuals who have no clue why that was even a difficult, a striking comment to even be said. Sure. So, because there are a lot of people that believe that people find themselves, and I'll focus on Black people because that's that's sort of my area of emphasis these days, uh, why Black people find themselves in, in sort of difficult financial circumstances and seem to be under the impression that it's a, a function of not understanding how financial markets work, having low levels of financial literacy, making poor decisions because they don't seek out uh, better information. The truth is, is that there's a lot of information that uh, is widely available, but it's widely available, more widely available for people who have more experience, which means that they have a history of more assets, higher incomes, uh, experience with investments, and so if you are not born with these experiences or access to this information, then you are forced to seek out information elsewhere. The truth is, is that, you know, traditional economic theory tells us that people are rational. It's based on the assumption that everybody has access to the same information sources and the same quality of information, which we know is not true and that people are facing the same decision problems. It doesn't account for things like past discrimination or racism, or the fact that, you know, there've been all kinds of studies on, on, on uh, the automobile market. And it turns out that black people are charged more for automobiles because they come out of negotiations with sellers uh, at a disadvantage, they end up paying more for that. So many people don't know that and wouldn't understand that. But traditional economic theory tells us there shouldn't necessarily be any racial issue there, that anybody selling a car will sell the car for the highest price that they can extract. And that the people who buy cars have an incentive to go around and negotiate until they can get the best possible price that is available. We know that there are limitations to that as well. People don't all have time to run around and negotiate. People don't necessarily have this come to negotiations with the same um, bargaining position and bargaining chip. Um, everybody doesn't have access to uh, or similar access to uh, these you know, resources. And I'm just using the car example because it's a widely used example. And there've been a lot of studies that, that look at that. That's just one. When it comes to financing, we know that Black people have been historically excluded from uh, access to credit, all kinds of credit, um, and as a result of that, have been less likely to be homeowners and so don't have access to that source of wealth. The homes that Black people own 
uh, tended to be valued, um, have, have lower home values. And so they are uh, able to accumulate uh, less equity in them that they can transfer to subsequent generations. Black people also have to pay higher interest rates for credit and access to mortgages, pay relatively higher property taxes, uh, live in, tend to live on average in homes that are older, and that's where your work comes in, uh, Daniel, that are older and may uh, be in uh, situations where they need sort of more repair and more investment in those kinds of repairs. And so those are other costs that have to be borne, pay higher rates of property insurance because of location and because of these other circumstances. And so it costs more to be a black homeowner. It also is harder to become a homeowner as a black person in the United States. Well, what does that all mean? It means that if you take something like uh, inheritance, and assume that everyone has access to a trust fund that they could use to, I don't know, buy a car, um, defray, you know, pay for college tuition, uh, or invest in the stock market, that that person has no real understanding of sort of the history of sort of the financial position of Black people in the United States or the current state of the financial position of Black people in the United States. And so I found it shocking because someone who comes from such a prestigious background and uh, arguably knows the literature and economics could make such a statement and and and, and assume that that is, that, that the people who make decisions to take out car loans just do it because they don't know any better. Uh, it was, again, shocking to me, uh, but it sparked a number of, you know, sort of issues that I felt compelled to, to try to expose. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, you know, I think you definitely help to unpack or help others see things that maybe they just don't get. Um, and, and clearly for someone at such a, a leadership position, for them to not understand those differences says so much about some of the decisions that are being made um, that impact homeowners, that impact um, everyone, um, the ignorant and those that are not ignorant, right? Because part of it is just people don't know. And, and that goes on both sides of the fence I, I, from my perspective. Um, but um, Dr. Perry, you know, one of the things you really alluded to is just around this whole conversation of what the interest rates are and it reminded me of a conv of of a study that I saw come out last week, which says that seventy two percent of persons only get one uh, rate for um, their mortgage, so they don't shop around, they don't do any extra homework. The study said basically that persons spend more time shopping for a car or even a television set than shopping around for rates. Um, and that, for me, that floored me because I, I do research. So my question really is, what has been your experience? What have you seen around things like that? Because if we are supposed to help people make better decisions, 
what what is the, uh, some prescriptive advice around such issues? Because you mentioned a lot of things, especially where Black populations are impacted. So how do we go about making better decisions, based, especially on what your research has shown and based on studies like that and what, what they show? So I'm probably going to answer in a way that it is not expected uh, because I get this question a lot about, you know, what is it that we can do to make better decisions? And there's all sorts of information available to people on the internet. One of the problems is, is that people can't evaluate the quality of the sources. So they're willing to seek out information, uh, but they can't necessarily determine who, 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 who's trusted and who is not. The truth is, I don't know very many people at all who shop around for mortgages. And, you know, I know people who, uh, you know, again, that, that, that are, you know, leaders in the mortgage industry that do not shop around for rates. Why? They don't have to, because they have trusted advisors that do it for them. I've on my, I don't know, sixth or seventh refi, I have never shopped for a mortgage. I never would. Why? Because I have a broker to do that for me. I don't need to do that. And I know I'm getting the best rate because I got a broker. That's job is to do that. And they better do it because otherwise I won't use them and I won't refer them to anyone else. And so it's a certain kind of market power that allows people to go through the world, people who already have wherewithal to uh, be able to navigate these complicated markets without having to know a great deal on their own. And my concern is what is, is the notion that because you're a black person, you have to spend all this time trying to figure out these complicated things on your own. Whereas nobody else does. They don't, they have people to do that for them. And so I would never suggest that people don't seek out information and make the most informed decisions that they can. But the truth is, you could spend, if you really needed to, if you had the opportunity, you could spend hours, days, courses, trying to understand how to navigate these markets at the expense of other things that you have to do. And the truth is, people don't have time for that. So I, I, I hesitate to suggest that there's something wrong with people because they don't shop around. Because the truth is, you don't get that many mortgages. Most people don't get that many mortgages in their lives. So the information that you spend hours and days trying to accumulate, you can only use once. But the information that you could use, you, you could use that time potentially for something else. So what I say, use a go to a lending institution that you know is uh, reputable, that has been around for a while, uh, that has shown you other signals that they are trustworthy and let them refer you, you know, hire an, an actual licensed real estate professional. Don't let somebody down. Don't let me tell you what to do because I don't know. I'm the first one to tell people I'm lazy. I'm not going through all that. So I call people and I ask them to give me advice on those kind of things. And the only difference between me and, and, and anyone else is that I'm willing to acknowledge the fact that I don't have time to do that kind of research and that I realize that there are people who do know and will help me 
because it's in their best interest to do so. And so that's a, it's a, it's a different, I, I, and I apologize. I, again, I'm not so, suggesting that people should not inform themselves, but the truth is these matters can be so complicated and so situation specific that it's almost impossible for any one family or household to master all of this knowledge in a way to inform, you know, one particular decision. But it reminds me of this one. So someone asked me this question back in the sort of subprime lending era. And a doctoral student and I did a paper, which uh, was one of my favorite studies, because all we wanted to demonstrate is that when distracted by a much sort of more interesting and compelling decision problem, we could show that people were more likely to choose an inferior mortgage product. And when I say inferior, something that's higher risk for, for them and that um, potentially would be more expensive. And how do we do that? We just subjected people to a hypothetical home shopping exercise. And we asked these experimental participants to go online and look at these houses and look at these properties and go through the rooms and make some choices about what they would like, you know, which ones they like better. And then after that, we asked them, now choose a mortgage product that you think would best fit your needs based on this home that you've just elected. And wouldn't you know, compared to people who didn't shop for homes, but just watched scenes from Finding Nemo, and I'm, I'm serious, that's what we did. We showed them scenes from Finding Nemo. The people who had just been shopping for a home were much more likely to pick the first option that was presented to them, the one with the lowest starter monthly, uh, introductory monthly payment, not realizing that that payment was going to go up, uh, the one with the highest fees, basically the worst options. And so what do we learn from that? We learned that people get distracted by uh, decision-making processes that at that point in time are more significant to them. So it didn't have to be home shopping. It could be shopping for a school for their kids or, or helping their kids with their homework or making some health medical decisions or, or whatever. But you can't necessarily expect people to bring all of their sort of knowledge and best decision-making to every decision because we face other distractions in the world. And the truth is they have an impact on the decisions that we make. Uh, is that something that we account for in, you know, sort of the mortgage industry? No, we don't. Um, we, we assume that people will shop around or we tell them they should shop around, but I'm not sure how realistic that is. That, that's um, both instructive, and I would say um, it also really pulls at the, the heart of one of those issues that, for me, understanding, you know, just this industry, it's one of the things that you constantly hear. So the, the question really is, how do we ensure, because I don't think that there is a way for us to we can't avoid people of the responsibility because yes, life happens and we all have to deal with life's issues. Uh, but what I would say though, is that ultimately 
there has to be a, a level of responsibility. And it may not necessarily be getting people to make the active decision of, you know, shopping like 10 different rates or something like that. But it's actually getting people to a state of mind of thinking, here's what, I'm not just going to pick just the best offer I'm presented with or that I see. Um, could I go to another lender? Could I negotiate? Could I do certain things? And it may not be necessarily you, but it's just about getting people to that mindset. Because even when you go negotiate for a car, the, the, the person will tell you one price and most of us would say, well, can I get something off or you know something like that? And I'm just thinking, well, with your rate, that's what you should be doing. So if you get a rate that we're in a current interest rate environment of 7%, um, if you come and tell me, oh, well, 7% um, is the lowest, and I can say, okay, well, is that the best? Or do I go to another lender or somebody else just compare online? It may be as easy as that. But I'm thinking about just the mindset. And I think we have to develop that mindset. So we're just not taking everything that's presented. We actually ask questions. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, for most of us, this is our most important asset. But so many things hinges on this. So I would go to, you know, just what else hinges on this? Valuations. <laughs> and so, you know, if you, if you just accept what you get, then where we see, especially with black and minority homeowners, where we have uh, all these global valuations and we know that this is going to be a big topic in the next few days. Um, but really, how do we ensure that people understand what to do? Because I think that even in understanding lowball valuations, I see a similar problem. People may have accepted in the past and, and in the last year or two, we've had people who have, you know, started pushing back. We've had all the news stories and reports coming out. So how do we get people to shift their mindset, not just from just accepting, especially for their most important asset? So I think, I think things like this, this podcast, like this program itself is doing exactly that. And I think the key word that you just used is the mindset, mindset about asking questions, ask questions, just keep asking questions and ask for evidence behind, you know, an explanation. Why is, why am I getting this rate? Why is the rate that's published in, by the way, every single major news publication that exists, why is this rate lower than what I've been offered? Explain this to me. And if you don't like that explanation, go to the next person. And that applies to home value, you know, appraisals, interest rates, both in this context and in others. You know, there's so many things that are negotiable, but uh, property tax uh, assessments, who knew that you could actually um, appeal a property tax assessment? So it turns out that a lot of Black households, because they tend to be concentrated in neighborhood in black neighborhoods or neighborhoods with higher um, concentrations of, of minorities end up paying relatively proportionally higher property taxes. And so that turns out to be the case, but they also, and there's one study that was done in Chicago, which was just sort of beautifully done and very illuminating. 
suggests that Black people in these areas are less likely to file appeals to the local government about their property tax assessment. So your property taxes are a proportion of the property tax assessment, which you know usually in most areas goes up every year. And you can appeal that and ask for them to go in and do sort of an audit of those, those factors. And once you challenge this, you have rights as a homeowner, as a resident, to for an explanation for why your assessment is what it is. And these are challenges, homeowners often win them. And in some jurisdictions, they're set up in such a way that you don't even need to hire a lawyer or legal representation to handle it. So one would think like, this is an important thing, but people don't know that this is even feasible. Uh, it's probably printed on the back of your property tax assessment bill. Uh, who's gonna read that? Um, and otherwise it, it's not something that is widely known. So having these kind of discussions, which really the big takeaway is have a mindset where you question people who are representing themselves as experts about the whys. And if you don't believe them, ask the next person you can find until you can arrive at a consensus. And that see, that doesn't put a whole big burden on people to do a bunch of research to try to understand a lot of stuff that they may not understand. The burden is on those supposedly trusted advisors to make it clear. And there's nothing wrong with asking those questions. That's why I just really, really love what you just said. I mean, thank you. The mindset and that shift is so huge because I think um, so many times people are feeling in a place of, I'm just lucky to be at the table. I'm just yeah. lucky to be here. And so they accept and take anything. Um, you know, I, I worked in banking and uh, a previous lifetime ago and the not surprising, right, that people wouldn't, they're just happy to be at the bank and get whatever they could get because the for them, right, that that was what um, they saw as an opportunity. Interesting what you were also saying about your study. I find that super curious because um, working in real estate and prop tech, you know, I call home, it's like eye candy, right? When, you know, people get so excited about the eye candy that the money is like, it's like almost like a wedding, you know, hurts. <laughs> I, I, I compare it the same as like, it's like, when they think about a wedding, they're like, what are all the things I'm gonna get? Cause I'm gonna do it once. And I want the doves and I don't care how much this stuff costs. And then we end up in debt and you can't even get a house. Same thing with the house. It sounds like with your study, if I'm getting it is that the eye, they're so enamored with the eye candy of the things that they want and the, the perceived sense of urgency that they gotta be quick to get it, that they're willing to take it at what risk. And if I hear you correctly, mindset is important because if you didn't go in there with the idea of I'm just getting eye candy of this beautiful home, but I'm really thinking about how do I get the best affordable home, your whole mentality just shifts. That's so true. It's so I mean, true. So if you separate those tasks, the, the more you separate those tasks, the better decisions you'll get on both ends because you don't have either of them sort of distracting you from the other. So the financing task needs to be, uh, those decisions need to be made when you are at your, you know, at, at your sort of peak attention, uh, which your peak analytical mind needs to be focused on that. And then 
you know, you can shop for, you know, what, whether, what you, what you want to, how you want the living room to, to be set up. You can think about that later. Um, um, I, I would say that it, it aligns with a statement that I make sometimes is we have to separate what we romanticize as the whole concept of home ownership versus the actual asset of the home and how we make sure that we are not necessarily making bad decisions because we have romanticized because we've all grown up hearing you know the concept of the american dream you know have the house the white picket fence blah 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 and so a lot of us you know really go into the conversation of trying to own a home from that standpoint um as we, you know, try to hit the last few questions to wrap up, Dr. Perry, you know, um, I know Amira had a question on one of your studies. Um, I want to see ask the question really about what you're seeing in, you know, some of these new mortgage products that are on the market, especially for those first-time homeowners. What is your interpretation of them? And how can these possible homeowners, because we are in a conundrum of, high uh, home prices, high mortgage rates, what can these people do and how do they make the best decisions for them at this stage of a very interesting period of um, housing history, I would call it? So um, are you thinking about like the special purpose credit programs? Yeah, some of those. Yeah, some yeah. of these special purpose credit programs, which you know are actually uh, part of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act that haven't actually been acted upon much up until very, very recently when some major lenders decided to make them available. And what these programs do is actually allow race, a person's racial background to be used as um, uh, evidence of disadvantage that affords them access to uh, mortgage products that may have certain, may waive certain kinds of un underwriting requirements or are sort of more flexible, like not requiring a credit score, um, but using sort of alternative forms of payments as, as evidence of, of a strong credit history. Uh, some of them uh, waive down payment requirements or allow down payment grants to be made by, you know, some third party uh, nonprofit organization or government organization. So they've got a number of features, but the purpose is to be able to accommodate folks who have um, historically not had access to mortgages. So while these have, I think, just unbelievably great potential because these programs are designed to address the history of racism and discrimination in access to home ownership. That's what they're designed to do. And they're the only products out there that are explicitly designed to do that. So I think that they have great potential. My concern though, is how much they cost. That's one issue I have. I don't know what the rates are. They all published the fact that the rates are competitive, but I don't know what they're competing with. I don't know what that means. Are they rates similar to what you might see in an FHA in it with for an FHA loan, uh, which it, it tends to be, you know, more expensive over time because it requires a certain amount of mortgage insurance? 
uh, is it more expensive than what you might get for a conventional loan? Well, conventional loans carry a wide range of rates because a lot of them charge loan level pricing adjustments when the borrower has you know, imperfect credit or doesn't have a, a large down payment, you know, say three to 5% down, you could be charged a higher interest rate for that. And certainly their mortgage, private mortgage insurance requirements uh, in the conventional market as well. So I just don't know how much people are being charged. And one concern, and I think it's, you know, maybe a little bit overblown, but I get it, is that these kinds of products will end up looking like what we saw in the subprime crisis when people who didn't meet sort of the traditional mortgage underwriting requirements were offered mortgages and that ended up in a big sort of um, mess, a, a big, you know, it, it led to a whole economic crisis. People are concerned about that. Now, who knows whether or not these programs will ever really scale up and be large enough to be a problem, right, at all, regardless of, of, of how well they're constructed, because there's such a limited supply of, I, I don't even want to use, it, use, use the term affordable, but it is, there's so few units available for purchase for even people who are at 120%, in some areas, 150% of the local area median income, that there's that that it's unlikely that these programs will have any real impact because there's no place for them to buy. Um, they're just not enough units. And there's really not very much in place nationally, but in, in areas that are are have the highest house prices to alleviate that those supply constraints, certainly not in the foreseeable future. And so this house price situation will continue for some time. And if that's the case, then uh, uh, black and brown prospective home buyers who tend to have lower incomes uh, on average anyway, are certainly not going to have any more opportunities to enter home ownership than they have. Uh, we'll be lucky if the home ownership rate doesn't decline uh, until we get more supply. So the interest rate situation is a constraint. Um, the but the house in the house price uh, situation it, it is is a major constraint. But the truth is, it's the supply uh, and lack thereof that's the real problem. Thank you. I know we're close to time and I know we have to wrap up, but I just want to give a shout out to your article, your research that you did on dog parks and coffee shops. Uh, I found that I saw that and there was a trailer and it was really exciting to to read and, and faux diversity. And um, for those, I know we talked a lot about people that are entering the market or purchasing, but I thought this was really interesting, specifically if you are already in the market because it does speak to you how you can, we, you know, market share will, will shift because of that. So um, I would love to hear uh, if you can, like one piece of, you gave a really great advice for, I think, new homeowners around mindset. Is there anything that you should be, what you would share for someone who's currently has a home and something that they should be just mindful of? 
well, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, some of this popular media coverage of these disparities in home valuations and, and appraisals. And I also learned throughout this that you can get multiple appraisals. You don't have to rely on one appraiser and you can certainly challenge them and report something that you feel is um, inappropriate to the company. And this is something that I probably never thought of. And I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. Uh, it's a mindset that, you know, challenge what, whenever you think something may, well, whether you think it may be right or not, it's worth challenging and pushing back on professionals whose job it is to convince you that they're doing the right thing on your behalf. And uh, it's the same point. It's about having a mindset sort of to challenge the status quo so that you get the best possible outcome. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, as we get ready to wrap up, uh, Dr. Perry, um, my last question to you is, so if you had to do anything else, this is a fun question. If you had to do anything else outside of, you know, housing, what would you be doing? Or talking about housing? I'd be drinking wine. <laughs> what kind of wine? Wait a minute. <laughs> I can go on all day about the kinds of wines that I enjoy, but there's a wide range. And it turns out there's a whole world of wine I haven't even had a chance to taste. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, folks, um, we would like to thank Dr. Perry for extending her time to us and for really coming on to the first episode of the Keep Wise podcast to share her knowledge and her experience and what led her to um, delve into this whole world of housing and housing inequality and affordability, et cetera. Um, I want to thank Amira for being here on this first episode and we look forward to sharing more about housing and we would love that you would like, share uh, and ask questions so that we can possibly have Dr. Perry back, you know, answering some more questions about what homeowners should really be thinking of and what the market needs more of, because this is your most important asset. And at the end of the day, it impacts your life and how your family and what you're able to do. So this is episode one of Keep Wise and we're signing out. Mm -hmm.